Christian activists. They were debating homosexual activists regarding the origins of homosexuality. In other words, how people become homosexual. My experience has been that it depends on the person. Different people get into homosexuality in different ways and have different influences that affect them. Hey everybody, this is Brooks Popwell. Homosexuality is a part of contemporary life that no one can ignore these days. It could be that you have a friend, co-worker, or family member who identifies as gay. Or maybe, like me, you've had to deal with same-sex attraction yourself. But wherever you're at, as Christians, we've got to have hopeful answers for people who are struggling. And so in today's episode, I talk with Pure Life's president, Steve Gallagher, about five reasons why people could feel drawn toward homosexuality. Then, Jim Lewis breaks down the unique approach that biblical counseling offers people in addiction. And Jeff and Rose Cologne give couples some advice on effective communication in their marriage. This is Purity for Life. to let you know about a brand new resource we have available here at Pure Life Ministries. It's the Overcomers series. This is a boxed set of 12 DVDs that show the pathway into a victorious Christian life. This series features 24 specially chosen messages, along with many bonus features, including documentaries, testimonies, interviews, and more. It's all meant to empower believers to move beyond a life of lukewarmness or spiritual defeat and experience what it's like to live a consistent and godly walk with the Lord. To learn more, view the video trailer, or purchase the Overcomers series, visit purelifeministries.org slash theovercomers. Now, let's get back to our first interview today. Pastor Steve, It goes without saying that homosexuality is a hot-button topic in the Christian world these days, especially since the Supreme Court decision about gay marriage a couple years ago. And I would think a lot of the questions for those who are struggling with this issue have to do with why. Why am I this way? And as soon as I say that, it immediately comes to my mind that you have, you know, homosexual activists on one side— with their explanations, and then Christians and their viewpoints on the other, and there's that debate between the two. Can you explain a little of what's going on with that? Yeah, back in the day, uh, Exodus International was an umbrella group of ex-gay ministries across America, and they were debating homosexual activists regarding the um, origins of homosexuality. In other words, how people become homosexual. And the homosexual activists, their whole mantra has always been, God created me this way. You know, I was born this way. And, uh, you know, this is who I am. And God wouldn't expect me to be anything other than this, etc. And the on the Christian side, these Christian activists, their whole um, viewpoint was built upon what psychologists said, which was that 
well, you had a weak father figure or an absent father, and so therefore over time you developed this um, same-sex attraction, and that's how it comes about. It's not that you were born this way. So, you know, I've been dealing with homosexuals for, well, over 30 years, and my experience has been that it depends on the person. Different people get into homosexuality in different ways and have different influences that affect them in life that can lead them that way. So in a sense, the homosexuals are right and they're wrong, and the uh, ex-gay ministries were right and they were wrong, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so let's talk about that then. Some of those factors that people would point to to explain homosexuality in their life or the life of the person they love— Why don't we start off by addressing this idea that homosexuals are born this way? Is that true? From my experience, there are those people who from their earliest memories remember themselves as being more in line with the opposite sex, Um, meaning like some little boys just always were kind of a little bit on the feminine side, or let's say, let me just say it this way, they wouldn't tend to want to go play football and baseball with some of the other boys. They would more like want to play piano or something. And I've certainly, you know, talked to plenty of girls over the years. When they were little girls, they were tomboys, and they didn't have the a natural kinds of little girl things going on inside. And so, you know, there are those that have that kind of tendency. And then as life unfolds and the sexual uh, desires start coming, uh, you know, around in puberty, that they just can easily go in that same sex direction. But I don't have a problem with this. And first of all, I want to say that it's not everybody. And I'm going to get into some of those other ones here in a minute, I hope. Um, But the other thing is this, Brooks, is that we all are born with a sin nature. And we all have a desire inside of us for different forms of sin. Okay, I always had an abnormal desire for heterosexual, you know, experiences. From the time I was a little boy, I was doing things with little girls and stuff. So I was always geared that way. Well, people are wired differently. Some are wired to be attracted to alcohol, some to drugs, some to homosexuality. You know, the mankind has been infused with the disease of sin, and it certainly should not surprise us that the desires of our fallen nature would go off in all kinds of directions. So I do believe some are born with those tendencies, but I don't believe it justifies them um, pursuing that lifestyle. All right. Well, you kind of touched on the first part of that old nature versus nurture debate. And so why don't we go to that other side of that debate, the nurture side. And I know there are other people out there who would feel that homosexuality is primarily an issue of upbringing and how someone was raised. Uh, Do you find that to be sometimes true? Yes, I definitely do find that to be sometimes true. Not always, though. You know, there are um, some who, um, uh, okay, let's talk about guys. 
and let's say their father was wasn't in the home or wasn't a very strong part of the upbringing and so when they come into puberty and they are kind of starved for male attention and affirmation you know when you start getting um sexual desires which are starting to come on strongly and those can sometimes get fused in with that desire for male attention you know in the in the case of a young uh boy uh I can definitely see why many young boys go in the direction of getting involved with homosexual experiences because they are looking for male affirmation. Unfortunately, I don't think we can avoid mentioning also sexual molestation when we talk about this topic because, I mean, the reality is that some people's first sexual experience uh, was that and it was with someone of the same gender who abused them. So can you speak a little to that? Yeah, I mean, our own pastor, Ed Book, uh, had that experience, and that's what apparently drove him in that direction. I mean, and I remember—I haven't talked to him uh, particularly because he's, it began when he was four years old. But I've heard others where it began a little bit later, maybe six, seven, eight years old, and they remember themselves being definitely all boy, let's say, you know, just baseball player, you know, that kind of kid. But then after the molestation, everything started changing. And, you know, they have definite memory of the way they were before and the way they were after, and they changed. And from then on, they pursued the homosexual uh, lifestyle. And it's, again, it's, it was introduced into their psyche from that early formative uh, age. And the enemy just was able to capitalize on that and take them down that path. I think it's so good that we're seeing all these different pathways uh, because what you just said about somebody remembering that point, that was my experience, but for a different reason. And that brings me to my next question. Um, I was just about college age and beginning to stray into pornography and, you know, masturbation and getting in that habit of all of that. And I remember the day that I first saw a YouTube video of a homosexual encounter. And I just remember being fascinated by that. And I mean, I just I know that was the turning point because I don't remember any any desire or impulse toward that. But somehow it just captured my imagination. And yeah, so what is the power of pornography in this issue? Yeah, and you're bringing out uh, what would be the next entry point, kind of, is that many people like yourself never had that tendency, didn't ever think that way. And then when they started getting involved in pornography, they were infected uh, by perverse desires. Okay, for you it happened by seeing homosexual behavior, but most guys that get into it this way are just hooked on porn. You know, maybe month after month, year after year, they're seeing the same stuff. They're seeing males with females. But, you know, um, sin never satisfies, and you end up needing to go into something deeper, something different, something more perverse. And since they've been filling their minds with those images and uh, those scenes, 
then they start kind of switching over. Well, I wonder what that would be like and getting into bisexuality. And pretty soon they're full blown into the community, largely because uh, sex is so easy in the homosexual community as opposed with, you know, guys and girls. Finally, I'm thinking back to, you know, the well-known story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what captures my attention about this story is you have this culture that, I mean, it seems very similar to our culture, just so into this particular sin, and it's just out there. Um, What's up with that? Like, how come in Bible times or today, there are just cultural shifts and time periods like this where homosexuality flourishes, and how, how could that be an influence? Well, historically, homosexuality has always flourished in prosperous, licentious cultures. You know, the more money you have, the more time, free time you have available to you, and the more opportunity, you know, we just have sinful hearts, and we're going to be out looking for something. And it it just seems like when you look back at ancient Greece, ancient Rome, um, any time you had a culture that was really doing well, it just seemed like homosexuality followed right behind it. I do need to say that somehow the enemy is able to get into those kinds of cultures and stir this thing up and and start building a momentum that will lead people into increasingly depraved behavior of all kinds. Where I really see it in the American culture is with girls, girls that were not tomboys, but for whatever reason, maybe they've been burnt too many times by guys using them or maybe some other reason, and they come into contact with other girls involved with the lesbian lifestyle, and and they just get sucked right into that culture. And so, you know, that's why you have just as many lesbians as you do homosexual males is because there's a whole culture there that will embrace them and give them that false sense of love and security, and they don't have to deal with the whole thing of guys wanting to use them and all of that. Well, I hope this has maybe been a help to someone out there who, I mean, maybe this is their struggle themselves, or maybe it's somebody that they care about and they just can't wrap their mind around what this person is going through, can you end by giving a word of advice to that person that is struggling and, you know, they may not really even know why, but it's just so strong with them, this desire for homosexuality? Well, all I would say is just as a word of testimony, you know, sexual sin had a powerful hold on my life, but the day came when I just got fed up with it. I got sick and tired of paying the price, and I repented. I really turned to the Lord, and he started doing a powerful work inside of me. And my values and my desires started changing. My desires, as I uh, spent time in the Word, spent time in prayer, pursuing God, those desires grew exponentially and overcame my desires for sin. And, And it took a couple of years, but I overcame it. And my life has been wonderfully free for 30-some years now. So I would just say, turn to God and repent. And
And that's where you're going to um, start finding your way out of the hole of sin. I mentioned in the intro today that homosexuality is something I've struggled with personally. Because of my own experience, I do want to say that for whoever you might know who's dealing with this issue, there really is a fulfilling life in God, a life of victory that's available for those who want it. I've seen that to be true in my own life, as well as in the lives of others that I work with here at Pure Life Ministries who share that same struggle, and in countless other testimonies of people who've come to the ministry for help. If you want to hear more from some people who have that testimony of victory in this area, you can check out podcast episode 316, as well as some testimony videos that you'll find underneath this podcast on the Purity for Life page, purelifeministries.org slash podcast. Well, we've been talking so far today about the root causes of a person's struggles, but as helpful as it can be to understand why you're dealing with a particular problem, people who are facing addiction also need to know how to get help that will really work for them. Jim Lewis, a former pastor of many years and a biblical counselor, had to fight through sexual addiction himself. Along the way, he became convinced that the biblical counseling approach has the answers people need, and he clearly describes what this kind of counseling offers to those who are in bondage. Jim, when I was thinking about this topic of biblical counseling and the value of it, I wanted to talk to you because I know you have your own story of wrestling through what approach to counseling will really help people. I mean, you, you were a pastor for many years. You had to think through this and sort through the various approaches that are out there. So maybe a good place to start would be just you sharing a little of that journey and how you came to really stand behind biblical counseling as the approach that you would use. My journey as a biblical counselor is this. I had the opportunity to attend a Christian college where I took my first counseling course, and the textbook for the course was Competent to Counsel by Jay Adams. Jay Adams is regarded as the leader in the ministry of biblical counseling. So my very first exposure to the subject of pastoral counseling back in the mid-70s was from a biblical counseling perspective, and that laid the foundation for me. But in the 30 years that I spent in pastoral ministry, there were other influences as well. Uh, Many of our listeners are familiar with the popularity of Dr. James Dobson and the focus on the family ministry. And they may know of Rafa or the Minerth Meyer Clinics. And these offer an integrationist approach, which is combining psychology with Bible truths. I read much of this material, and I used some of it along the way. But when I finally got serious about getting out of my own sexual sin, my first attempt at seeking help was through a 12-step program. And I found it helpful to gather with men and come into the light, seek accountability, and receive the guidance of a sponsor, but I found that the focus was far more on behavior modification than on real heart change. Now, I didn't come to Pure Life because they were biblical counselors. I came because I was desperate and nothing else had worked, and they offered hope and a proven track record of men finally getting free. 
But what I experienced when I got here was the power of God's Word to straighten out my thinking and really change my heart and set me free because that's the only approach used here, uh, counseling by the Word of God. And I became convinced that biblical counseling was the only thing that works. Now, as a counselor myself for several years, I have seen it work in the lives of hundreds of men who have passed through here and are now walking in freedom from sinful habits that had dominated their lives for years. Well, Jim, obviously, if you are saying that you are a biblical counselor, you would say that is as opposed to being a counselor who subscribes to psychological theories of counseling. So for you personally, then, how do you see that kind of thinking, the psychological standpoint, how is that affecting people that you talk to that come to you looking for answers? People who have been heavily influenced by a psychological approach to counseling come to us with several issues that we have to overcome in order for biblical counseling to be effective. For example... They may come to us under the influence of psychotropic drugs, which have been prescribed to them by their psychiatrist. Brooks, I've had counselees who were on five different medications at the same time, prescribed to treat anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD, and sleep orders. And some of these medications were given to counteract the side effects of the other medications. It's ironic to me that they are here to deal with a sexual addiction, but they are now addicted to the very meds that were prescribed by their therapist. Jim, you mentioned psychotropic drugs, and boy, if that's not a hot-button topic, I do think it's important as we're talking about our philosophy of counseling here and the biblical approach that we mention to people, because so many people are on these drugs now, and just to tell people we do not force people off of their medications, right? I mean, that's not something you do as a part of your counsel. Well, no, you're absolutely right about that because we are biblical counselors. We are not medical professionals, and we're not in a position to tell a man that he has to stop taking his meds. Our official position is that you have to stay on whatever meds that you were on when you got here. Uh, We don't give medical advice. But it is very difficult sometimes to get through to a man who can't think clearly because his mind is clouded by the medications that he's on. Well, I did think it was important to clarify that just because it might have raised some questions or concerns in people's minds. But I do want to put an important uh, mention in here of the Overcomer series that we just produced because one of the DVDs in that series is by Dr. Daniel Berger, who is a very knowledgeable expert on this field of psychopharmacology, which has just become so huge in our culture. And if anybody really wants some deeper explanation and answers about what is really involved with that approach to counseling, where some of the potential dangers and maybe some of the alternatives that they haven't considered, uh, I'd refer them to that series and to the DVD in that series called Finding Answers to Life's Struggles. Okay, but back to our interview. I don't want to get too far off track here. What are some of the other influences you see in the people that you counsel 
who come from this psychological counseling background. Another issue is that they have been led into a victim mentality. Nothing that they have done in their view is their fault or their responsibility. All of their sinful behavior is the result of poor child rearing by their parents or some past trauma. Many counselees have had great harm done to them and have endured horrific sexual abuse. And all of this is very real and we deal with it. But it is not an excuse for avoiding their responsibility for their own choices and their habitual sexual sin. Psychologized people believe that the answer to their current issues lies somewhere in their past, in some uncovered event locked away deep in their subconscious mind. They're given to morbid introspection and self-analysis, which just makes them very self-centered and selfish. They are looking for the key, the magic solution to all their problems that has so far eluded them. Now, a lesser issue, but very real, is that psychologized counselees expect to do all the talking in a counseling session because that's what they're used to. They're very surprised when you tell them that you intend to counsel them from the Word of God and that they are here to receive counsel and that they will do far more listening than talking. As a biblical counselor who has passed through pure life as a student, I already know what the issue is, because it's no different than any other counselee. The answer to their problem will not be found by exploring their past or delving deep into their psyche. The answer will be found clearly displayed in the Word of God. They are here to submit to God, to repent of sin, and to trust God to change their heart. Let's actually get into this biblical approach that you take to counseling. What are some of the foundational convictions that guide you as a biblical counselor when it comes to helping people with their problems? Well, first, Brooks, the word addiction is not in the Bible. The sex addict does not have a disease, and so the answer is not found in taking medicine. The person who is addicted to pornography or to certain sexual behaviors is addicted to sin. They are addicted to the emotional and physical payoff of their behavior. Now, all sin is addictive in the sense that the more you do it, the more you want to do it. But the payoff decreases in intensity over time, and so the addict, the sinner, seeks the same high by going longer or deeper, or different, often into more dangerous or more perverse activities. He's wanting a greater experience or a better high than last time. But in the end, sin always leaves a man deluded, disappointed, and destitute. Still, he persists because he lacks the knowledge, the guidance, and the disciplines needed to overcome sin's power on his own. He needs a lot of help. My foundational conviction is that the problem is sin. God alone has the solution for man's sin problem. The solution is found in repentance towards God, the forgiveness offered in Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit to change a man's heart, 
to overcome temptation, and to walk in ever-increasing victory, freedom, and holiness. Pure life has been walking men out of habitual sin into purity for 33 years now. All right. Well, let's get a little bit deeper into how this process actually works of counseling someone biblically. And I guess, you know, the example I'll take would be just a typical guy who comes to pure life. I mean, even like my story, I came in at age 26 and I'd been addicted to porn and masturbation since when I started college. So it had been about 10 years. And I was in the church, but I just kept getting deeper and deeper into different forms, like you were saying, different forms of immorality and perversion. And unfortunately, I think that that's typical for a lot of guys from the same background as me, you know, in church, but just maybe hanging on the fringes. What is going on here then from your perspective? How does somebody get here to where they're just so in the grip of sexual sin, even though they're in the church? The Bible tells us that a man pursues what he desires. Sexual sin does have a physical and an emotional payoff. Fantasy, masturbation, and intercourse all bring short-term pleasure. The problem is that when sexual pleasure is pursued outside of the biblical parameters, the end result is always sin, guilt, and separation from God. James said that temptation brings forth sin, and sin results in death. Now, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes a man's uh, descent into deeper and deeper sin, saying that when men forsook God and pursued their own idolatry, that God gave them over to what they wanted. And the example that Paul gave for man's descent into depravity was indeed sexual sin. The result was that man became reprobate in his mind. Thinking himself wise, he pursued sin until his very thinking was worthless. I like to say it this way, that sin makes smart people really stupid. Now, if the definition of insanity is that one keeps doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, then sin also makes people insane. Man, I know I can totally relate to that. Uh, And the funny thing is, at the time, people don't think, I didn't think, that what I was doing was unreasonable. But you look back and, yeah, it totally seems like insanity. I mean, it's just not the way that uh, normal people would behave. And I think ultimately, maybe in the back of someone's mind, they know that because they wouldn't want others to see what they're doing. Um, But you can just get so lost in it. So anyway, can you go on in describing that progression then and talk a little more about what happens to a person when they begin this downward spiral? Well, on a very practical level, Men pursue their course on the downward spiral because they do not come into the light and they do not believe the truth. In their shame, they keep secrets. They refuse to tell other people what's going on with them. And then they have to tell lies to cover it up. And their shame keeps them quiet, and so they refuse to get help. Often, even professing Christians believe lies about God, about themselves, and about their sin. Either they believe that God can't help someone like me, or 
he won't help me. Uh, either they believe that they are beyond redemption or the problem isn't that bad. You know, it's either masturbation is normal, it's not a sin, or God understands and he forgives me, or God is angry with me and I'm beyond his mercy and forgiveness. Our task as biblical counselors is to straighten out wrong thinking by looking at the truth revealed in the Word of God. This is sin. The lies you believe are keeping you in bondage to your sin. But God has provided a way out of sin in the cross through Christ Jesus' death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit will walk you into freedom and give you victory over temptation and sin. This is the only way to lasting freedom. Okay, so again, let's say I'm fresh out of my life of addiction and I'm coming to you for help. I think people might be able to jump on board with what you're saying and say, okay, yeah, I understand the Bible has the answers for me, but if you are going to give me an overview of what's ahead as we counsel together, um, what is this change process going to look like? What is the overall picture of what I need to do next? Well, Brooks, you're right in saying that this is a process. It is often a difficult journey. And there's a reason why the residential program lasts nine months. A lot of lies and bad thinking need to be exposed and replaced with the truth. Sinful habits need to be broken and replaced with godly disciplines, and that takes time. Fears need to be overcome with faith. Uh, this is a long process for many. But if I had to boil it down into a simple step-by-step -step process, I would offer as a template what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10. In that verse, he said, For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly sorrow produces death. Literally, sorrow or grief that is according to God. That is, a sorrow that is towards him and by his will works a repentance, a complete turnaround, a deep and thorough change in your heart. And that leads to salvation or deliverance and freedom from sin. And this is what we see God doing in the lives of men on a regular basis. A man is confronted with his sin. He comes to own it and take responsibility for it. He stops making excuses and blaming others for it. He needs to see his sin the way God sees it. He needs to reckon with what his sin does to the heart of God and with the devastation that he's brought into the lives of others. He needs to come into godly sorrow. And this means that he has to move past worldly sorrow. He has to stop looking at what my sin has cost me or how all of this affects me. This worldly sorrow is selfish and self-centered. Worldly sorrow is sinful, and sin always brings forth death. But godly sorrow produces repentance, and repentance is a deep and thorough change of heart. You change your thinking 
about God. You change your thinking about your sin. You see God as merciful, willing and able to forgive, cleanse, restore, and then empower a spirit-filled believer to walk in victory. Heart change leads to change in behavior as sinful lusts and habits give way to godly desires and spiritual disciplines. And finally, Brooks, repentance produces salvation, which is deliverance or the rescuing of a man out of captivity and death into freedom and life. And again, this process takes time. There is a lot to be undone. God is building in a man a new life. It is not easy, but it's not complicated. Everything is spelled out in God's Word. While everyone can benefit from receiving the kind of guidance that comes from solid biblical counsel, that's definitely the case when it comes to issues in marriage. That's why Jeff and Rose Cologne have devoted many years of their lives to helping couples thrive spiritually. Jeff is the pastor of Lighthouse on the Rock Church in Dry Ridge, Kentucky, and he and Rose are also the founders of Lighthouse Biblical Counseling Center. With clarity and compassion, they give some helpful advice about a key issue in marriage, good communication between a husband and wife. Jeff and Rose Cologne, I know that as you counsel with couples, one of the issues that must come up routinely is just the area of communications. Talk to us a bit about that area. Words are powerful, and they will either work to bring about God's peace and unity in a marriage, or they'll work to bring about contention, strife, and division. A couple has to learn how to bring God's thinking into their communication. They have to learn how to reconcile differences and and how to come to common ground, whatever they're dealing with. So what are some of the ways that you see this problem manifest in the relationships of the people you're talking to? Usually when we counsel the husband and wife, and we usually sit there and watch and observe them, communicate with one another. One of the common problems that both the husband and wife have is that they tend to jump to conclusions without really knowing what's going on with the other partner, or they read into maybe something the husband or the wife is doing or not doing, and they draw these conclusions, and later on they find out that they were so wrong. Is there anything, Rose, particularly that you see as you're talking with the wives about these issues? What we usually see with the wives when we talk about these issues is there's times when she's communicating, she's not aware how she's tearing her husband down with her words, or she's attacking his manhood, and the husband feels like, I can't do anything right. And he starts shutting down in communicating with her, and it becomes a barrier between the both of them. Jeff, what are some of the practical ways that a couple can begin to work on problems with their communication? It's really very simple. It's just them learning to sit down and to communicate biblically. A lot of times we get into things with our spouse and we're out in the car, we're driving around, or we're at the store, and that's really not the time to talk about an issue. Or sometimes we're at home and and one shuts down and doesn't want to talk or we play the silent treatment. If they want Christ in the center of their home, there has to be a willingness to communicate. So a conference table is a good way to do that where they can set up a place in the home where they know this is where we're going to sit down 
And this is where we're going to talk things through. We always tell them to have a Bible on the table because you want God's perspective on whatever it is you're talking about. We encourage them to pray before they start. And if there's anything that needs to be repented of, now would be a good time. I've found in my own marriage that if our hearts aren't right starting out, it's going to be very difficult to communicate. So it's very important, obviously, that our hearts get right before we can sit down. So we encourage them to get anything out and to maybe admit, you know what, I was wrong today or my attitude's been wrong. It's a good time to repent to one another and then begin to talk about the problem. You know, that makes me think to ask you, have you found some of the problems actually kind of disappear when repentance is done? Yeah, actually what you find out is that what you got mad about was really not an issue. And for the wife during this time, she might need to repent of being resentful towards her husband or bitter towards him. Maybe he spoke to her a certain way that day and she's been carrying around all day. And maybe they have the conference table like at seven o'clock at night. But all day she's been running that thing over and over in her mind and in her heart. And she's developing a root of bitterness towards her husband. This is a good opportunity for her to come to a husband and say, you know, I need to repent because my heart's not right towards you in that area that I've just allowed myself to become bitter or resentful towards you. The reality is that people live very busy lives. And how important is this that they really set aside that time on a regular basis to deal with this? I think in the beginning, it's very important, especially a couple that has issues that they're working through and has a serious communication problem, they have to learn how to communicate, and they're not going to learn without practice. And then after a while, after they feel like um, they are communicating, it could be limited to maybe when they have issues, when something's not right, or when they got to deal with the kids maybe about something. There's always something that needs to be discussed in a home. And it really is a good idea to have a place where we could sit down and really put our hearts into it and have God in the middle of it. To me, it's a good habit to do often. I know this kind of good communication is something that will be such a blessing to couples and a help to their marriage, but I want to get a little bit more big picture now and ask you, beyond the benefit that this has for the couples themselves, how important is good communication in a marriage to God? It's very important. Jesus many times warned us about our words And in Ephesians, Paul said, when we allow any corrupt communication to come out of our mouths, we grieve the Holy Spirit. God wants our words to edify one another. He wants our words to build up one another, to encourage one another. When we're not communicating in the Spirit, we're hurting one another. It really is a barometer of, is God conquering my will? Is God having his way in my life? Well, Jeff and Rose, thank you so much. I hope this discussion will be helpful to couples out there. I know all of us as individuals can do better in communicating, and I have to imagine that's true for couples as well, no matter how far along they are in their marriage. You can learn more about Jeff and Rose's counseling ministry, Lighthouse Biblical Counseling Center, as well as their church, Lighthouse on the Rock, by visiting their website, lighthousebcc.org. Well, that's all for today's show. Thank you for listening today, and we'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs 
powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.